Well, if you remember last week, I said we were starting a series on being a generous church. Being a generous church. And I talked primarily about having a generous heart. The only way human beings can have a, be generous people is truly to have a generous heart. And to do that, it requires a heart change or a heart transplant. When Christ comes, he gives us a new heart. And it changes everything. So it's only possible through Christ. And I use as an example of a very, 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 very generous God who blesses us beyond what we could even ask or imagine. And we're called to be like Christ. Therefore, we are called to be generous as he is generous. So last week, the focus was on just having a generous heart. And today, we're going to talk about a different aspect of generosity. And I hope it's another aspect or characteristic of Victory Church as a generous church. Can you imagine, how many of you know what the word utopia means? It's a utopia. Yes, it's a perfect place, ideal, perfect, kind of an idealistic thought. Can you imagine a community believers, we might call it a church, where it's like a utopia? It's the only one. Because <laughs> when I try to imagine it here on earth, I can't do it. And most of us probably can't either. But there's a church that we read about in Acts chapter 4, and I want to start there this morning. And I want to read just kind of overview of what it says about this church or this group of believers, a community of believers. It describes them in some amazing ways. It starts out by saying, they were all of one soul and one heart. They gathered together, one soul, one heart. There was a unity, a unity. They were focused. on. They had a similar purpose, similar desires. There was an important one thing in all of them. What a church, what a community of believers. And then it goes on and says that nobody claimed anything belonging to them was their own. It was to benefit the whole community. Can you imagine that kind of church, that kind of community? They considered everything common property. They were receiving powerful, God-inspired preaching on the resurrection of Jesus. And then it says, abundant grace was upon them all. Abundant grace upon every one of them, all of them. And therefore, there was no people with need because if there was a needy person, it says that they brought their houses or their land and they sold them and they gave it to the apostles or the leaders of that community of believers and they used this picture of laying it at their feet, but giving it to them and saying, hey, wherever there's a need, let there be no need. Be generous. Be a generous people. There was unrestrained kindness and generosity. Now, wouldn't it be great to be a part of that church? Wouldn't it be great for victory to be that kind of church? And I would tell you in a very humble way, I believe in a lot of ways we're there in in good measure. But there's always room to improve. And sometimes we need to be reminded of different areas because most of the time when a preacher is going to preach about generosity, you hear the word and right away you think that's a code word for money. He's going to be talking about money. Here we go again. Well, obviously, finances and money is an easy way to measure some sort of generosity. But you know what? You can be really giving in the area of money and not be a very generous person. We mentioned last week, it says to be a cheerful giver. And whatever you give, be a cheerful giver. Heart issue. 
that would mean that you can be a non-cheerful giver, obviously. But I'm not here to talk about money at all today. The title of the message is, It's Better to Be a Barnabas. Barnabas is one of those guys that we are introduced to in this same section of Scripture in Acts chapter 4. We read about him in verse 36 of Acts chapter 4. It talks about this guy named Joseph. He's a Levite, and his name is Joseph. Now, how many of us would have known that Barnabas' real name was Joseph? Barnabas became more or less a nickname. It says he was there at part of this community of believers, and it says he had a tract of land. And he went and sold that land, and he, like others had done, brought it to the, the, the leaders, the apostles, the disciples, and said, here, wherever there's a need, give it. But they didn't give him a nickname related to his generosity of giving away his property. They gave him a nickname, Barnabas. And it says right in there that it means son of encouragement. All that Barnabas gave away in his generosity of his property wasn't what he got famous for. It's really not what we probably remember him for. His name Barnabas means son of encouragement. And when he gave away that land, you, you know, it's one thing to just say, hey, I gave away land, but you got to realize a person giving away their land is giving away their livelihood. They're giving away their income. They're giving away every crop that that land may have produced forever. They're giving away part of the family inheritance. But yet he wasn't noted for that. He was noted for his kindness, his goodness, and his encouragement. That's what defined him, not what he gave away. Today in our world, it's most easy to track finances, the impact of finances. Matter of fact, if somebody mentions this large sum of money or somebody says to a church and the leadership of the church or the pastor, you know, here's a big wad of money. The first thing you might start thinking about is, wow, they're generous. And we start thinking about what we can do with all that money. What we could do with all that finances, all the things we could accomplish. But that's not what the focus was here. He became more famous for what he did in his attitude and his character of being kind and encouraging. That's what marked him as being generous. When we look at the money thing, we underestimate, if we give it a thought at all, the value and the power of words, especially those words of encouragement, words of kindness, words of hope. Barnabas left a legacy because of his encouragement. I think you could go so far as to say he actually changed the history of the Christian church because of his encouragement and kindness. And I want to share a few scriptures about Barnabas in scripture. They're not necessarily going to all be up there. Maybe none of them are up there. I don't even remember. But there's not a lot said about him. But what is said are amazing things that show you a picture into who he was. In Acts chapter 9, verse 27, he steps up. Paul has had an experience. Saul has had an experience on that Damascus road. 
His life has been changed by God. And eventually he wants to go back to Jerusalem. But he goes to Jerusalem and the disciples want nothing to do with this guy. He's a pariah. Why? Because they knew who he had been and what he had done. And there was no way the disciples would accept him into their group until Barnabas steps up. Barnabas comes to the disciples and the leader of the Jerusalem, leaders of the Jerusalem church, and he says, hey, this is Paul now. He's not just Saul anymore. He's Paul. He's a changed man. He's the real deal. He's been preaching Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected. He's the one that comes to the aid of this man called Paul that we look as a giant in our faith. In Acts chapter 11, they hear about a church in Antioch in Syria, north of Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem hears about this church, and they decide we should send somebody up there. Guess who they chose to send? They send Barnabas. And what does it say in verses 23 and 24? He went to Antioch where he encouraged the church. And it says he was a good man, full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And then it adds these words, and considerable numbers were added to the church daily. He came to encourage the church. And his character and what we hear about him in the Bible is, man, that guy is a good man. He is filled with the Holy Spirit and he's filled with faith. And it's like a magnet drawing people to Jesus through Barnabas. In Acts chapter 11, as the church in Antioch is growing, things are changing. He realizes, you know, we need more. We need more help. So he takes it upon himself and he travels to Tarsus. And if you remember in the Bible, Saul of Tarsus. Paul. He travels to Tarsus to go get Paul and bring him back. This time he's not introducing him to the Jewish leaders. Now he's introducing them to the Gentiles. And he brings them there and he stays there a whole year teaching and the church continues to grow. And it's interesting in Antioch, which became known as a church that sent out, when we read of Paul's missionary journeys, They're the church. They would have been his home church, his sending church. But it's interesting. Before they go on that first missionary journey, a group of people are together, and they're praying. And it says the Holy Spirit spoke to them. And he picked out the two people he wanted to go. Guess who he mentioned first? Barnabas. The Holy Spirit said, send Barnabas and Paul. Now, not many times most of us would consider getting billing in front of the Apostle Paul. The Holy Spirit pointed out Barnabas first. Then you maybe know the story. They were getting ready to go on their second missionary journey, and there was a little disagreement. Even Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement about a young man named Mark, John Mark. He had left them. He didn't finish the mission trip on that first missionary journey. And Paul, for whatever reason, said, no, I'm not taking him with again. And Paul says, no way. Barnabas is over here saying, come on, Paul. Let's let's take him with. He tries to defend Mark, but when Paul wouldn't give in, Barnabas says, okay, you go ahead and go. Take Silas with you. I'm going to go with Mark. A good man, filled with faith, an encourager, 
the son of encouragement. Barnabas changed thousands of lives by simply choosing to be generous, kind, and encouraging. What an easy way to build a legacy. Financially, cost you nothing to be kind, encouraging, and just be a good person. Choosing to see the best in people. How many of us have a... This is a rhetorical question. Please don't raise your hand. How many of us, first thing we do is we start judging people. We meet someone for the first time. Somebody introduces us somebody to the first time. We see somebody in a restaurant sitting across the way. And man, right away, our mind starts going. And usually it doesn't go like this. Wow, they look like good people. I'll bet they're really nice people. I bet they're generous people. I bet they're giving people. Now we look at them going, geez, look at those people. You see the way they talk to the waitress? I bet they don't even leave a tip. Look at the way they're dressed. I bet they don't even smell good. Come on. We are so quick to judge. Instead of just making a choice to give them the benefit of the doubt, they should not have to earn our praise before we can praise and encourage them. We look at people one way. God looks at them a different way most of the time. And I I know I've shared this before, but I'll never, ever forget it. In my years of ministry here, there was one Sunday, and it was communion, and I was standing right there, and everybody's coming up. Shoot, I get emotional thinking about it. My prayer was, Lord, let me see these people the way you see them. And if you had a camera on me, you'd have thought, what's wrong with that goofball? Because all of a sudden, I'm just grinning ear to ear as we're worshiping, and I'm looking at all of the people in this congregation come up and walk past. It was an amazing moment in my life to get a glimpse of how God sees people. I think he maybe knew I have a critical edge to me sometimes. That's pretty good. Not one amen, just a chuckle. That's good. Encouragement was the least expensive thing Barnabas gave away, but yet that's what he's noted for. It's the thing that impacted the Christian world at the beginning of the church. You know, that church in Antioch, when when Barnabas was there, that's the first place that followers of Christ ever were called Christians. He made a huge impact. So why are we so tight-lipped when it comes to encouraging others? You know, when you look at 1 Timothy or 1 Thessalonians, there's a verse there that pretty much commands us. It says, And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. We're to encourage people. You know, and we're to be like Jesus. And Jesus didn't wait for people all the time to get their act together before he showed them any favor or attention. Think of the Samaritan woman at the well. Her reputation was not good. And then she's a Samaritan, and Jews don't even talk to Samaritans, for goodness sakes. And she's got a whole bunch of husbands, and she's shacked up with some guy and not married to him. And Jesus goes and talks to her, demonstrates love before she ever repents, before she's ever saved, she does it. he does it up front. And it had a tremendous impact on her and then a whole community. Think of that little guy who climbed the tree, Zacchaeus. Jesus didn't wait for Zacchaeus to repent of being a 
crook and a tax collector and really kind of a dirt ball. He just looked up there and said, Zacchaeus, will you get down here? I'm coming to your house for lunch beforehand. We're called to be like Jesus. It does not hurt us to give people some encouragement and some praise before they've earned it in any way, giving them the benefit of the doubt, being more like Jesus. The words we speak, the words that we say to people, over people. You know, some people could even say sometimes when we speak these things, it's almost like we're prophesying to them or sometimes it's like we're putting a curse on them. Our words have power. You don't have to read the scriptures too long before you start coming through, coming to verses, especially in Proverbs, where it talks about the words we speak or this thing in our mouth called the tongue. And when it talks about the tongue, it's not talking about this organ, the tongue. It's talking about what this tongue does when it says certain things. Give you an idea in Proverbs 18, verse 21. The tongue has the power of life and death. That's amazing. The power of life and death. Those who love it will eat its fruit, whether it's death or whether it's life. Proverbs 11, 9. With his mouth, the godless destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge, the righteous escape. Through his mouth, the words we speak destroys his neighbor. Power in those words. 16.24, on the flip side, pleasant words are like honeycomb. It takes and brings sweetness to our soul, healing to the bones. You know, you walk around and just encourage somebody randomly. Maybe you know something, maybe you don't. You don't know what it does inside of them to be encouraged. A lot of us grew up where you didn't get much encouragement. We maybe didn't get any encouragement. We may have gotten a lot of discouragement. Those words stick with us. They change us. In Ephesians 4, verse 29 This is another example to me of where we read a verse and the power in the English language doesn't do it justice. Depending on your translations, it says this, do not let any unwholesome talk. Some translations say corrupt. Some say something else. But don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. That word unwholesome. To the person hearing it in the original language, it would bring a meaning that would stick with you. My daughter had a car one time, a little white car, but something decided to crawl up inside it somewhere and die. And we couldn't find it. We had it detailed and they couldn't find it. And my daughter kept calling from the city saying, Dad, I can hardly sit in this car. And I'm like, come on, Amber, quit being a wimp. Can't be that bad. Then Greg calls me and says, Dad, Mike, this car. So we drive up to the cities, and we're going to bring it home and get it cleaned up. Could hardly drive it home. It stunk so bad with the windows wide open, driving all the way to the cities, about to stop and throw up. It was that putrid. We had to sell the car. 
Seriously. We sold the car. Some poor... (laughs) We encouraged them. They didn't have a car. (laughs) This word in the original meaning, here's some of the things it means, and it's used in some different ways in the scripture, but the primary meaning is decayed, rotten, and it's applied to putrid vegetables or animal substances. Another way it's applied is to a tree that is absolutely useless and bears no fruit. Third way, in a moral sense, anything that's obscene, anything that's offensive, anything that tends to corrupt others. When that word, saphros, in the Greek was spoken here, this is the kind of thing it was. This thing, don't speak those words because they're going to stick with you. They're hard to get rid of. They do a lot of damage if they're negative words. Don't speak unwholesome words. Parents, man, we got to be careful with our kids. I go through a lot of steps in freedom with a lot of people that are adults, some of them 80 years old, and they remember words that mom or dad spoke when they were this big, and it changed their life. Sadly, more often than not to the negative the words they spoke. The other word that's in there, in my translation that I put up here, it says that it may benefit them. That word means to edify, to build up, to strengthen, to promote growth. He is making this powerful picture. Don't be using these putrid, rotten words that stick with them and stay on them and do damage. Speak building words, life-giving words, edifying words. Encourage them. The words we speak. Be a Barnabas. Be a Barnabas. Encourage other people. You know, can these have this kind of impact, really? And I, I believe most all of us can relate to some of this. I want to read a couple of uh, statements. They aren't my own. One, one was from a uh, Jewish rabbi, and I don't even know where the other one came from. But it said this, words have power. Their meaning crystallizes perceptions that shape our beliefs and drive our behavior and ultimately create our world. Their power arises from our emotional responses when we read, speak, or hear these words. The Jewish rabbi wrote, Words are singularly the most powerful force available to humanity. We can choose to use this force constructively with the words of encouragement or destructively use words of despair. Words have energy and power with the ability to help, to heal, to hinder, to hurt, to harm, to humiliate, and to humble. These words have power. The words we speak do not create reality. They cannot create reality. Words cannot create a reality. Reality, However, they can change how you or I perceive reality. That definition or that statement the first guy made, do we hear these words and they impact the way we think, what we believe, what emotional responses are triggered, and we carry that garbage with us until we understand truth. And those lies no longer impact us. We get set free of those lies. 
I know there's people in here that are no different from me, that we grew up and we heard things like, you're never going to amount to anything. How can you be so stupid? What is wrong with you? Can't you do anything right? You're so ugly. You're so... We've all heard words like that. Do they have an impact or don't they? What do we do with those kinds of words? We believe lies instead of the truth. That's the problem. The reality isn't reality. It's how we're perceiving it. We need to get in our heart what we sang about. What is reality? What is truth according to the word of God? Who are you? What is your identity? What is your position in life? I am a child of God seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's who we are. What else does the Bible say about you? Man, I could go on and on, and I have to sometimes in my own mind to remember I am loved by God. I'm the apple of his eye. He had died just for me. I am precious in his sight. He'd leave the 99 to come find me. That's who we really are. We're not what anybody else says we are. Oh, we may screw it up. We may do dumb things, and there are circumstances when that happens, but that's not who we are. And it's not what we are. We ought to remember who we are. We had to rely on truth. And we need to be always cautious that we are not the ones speaking those words that are destructive, that are putrid. We want to be speaking words that build up and edify. I'm going to do something I usually don't do. I'm going to share kind of a quick overview of a little book, a children's book. It was written by Max Lucado, and maybe many of you in here are familiar with this children's book. Wouldn't be a bad book for all of us to get a hold of and share with our kids. It's simply called You Are Special. Take a few minutes. I think it will drive home the point in such a simple way. There was a little village called Wemmick, and in this village was a woodcarver named Eli. And everybody in that village was carved and made by Eli. They all lived in this little village of Wemmick, and they all did the same thing every day. All day long, every day, they did the same thing. They went around looking at other people and sticking stickers on one another. They all had a box of gold stickers, and they all had a box of gray dot stickers. And if they would walk around and see someone who was pretty, the paint was nice and shiny, their wood wasn't chipped, they'd give them a gold star. Now, if I walked around and my wood was chipped, my paint was dull, I'd get a gray dot. If they'd walk around and see somebody who was talented or they perceived them to be smart because they could walk fast, they could run, they could jump, they could speak clearly and articulately, oh, if they were pretty... They'd get a gold star. Now those, on the other hand, that couldn't do much of anything right, got a gray dot. Well, there was one of these Wemmicks named Punchinello. And Punchinello, he was one of the latter. He was one of those that he'd try to jump, he'd fall down. He'd fall down, he'd get scratched up, chip his paint. He'd try to explain what had happened, and he'd say something stupid or silly, and they'd give him another gray dot. He had so many gray dots, he wouldn't even go outside, afraid he'd say something dumb and get more gray dots. 
He had so many gray dots on him that some people just came up and gave him a gray dot just because they knew he deserved another one. And when he would get up enough courage, he'd go outside. He'd go find a bunch of other Wemmicks with a bunch of gray dots because that would make him feel better for a little while. The people would say, he deserves them. Give him more dots. And he would say, I'm not a good person. I'm not a good wooden Wemmick. One day he met a Wemmick whose name was Lucia. And Lucia was different than everyone else. She didn't have any stickers. She didn't have any gold stickers. She didn't have any gray dot stickers. She had no stickers at all. The stickers wouldn't stick to her. They'd come and put a, try to put a sticker on it, and it'd just fall to the ground. No stars, no gray dots. Punchinello thought, that's the way I want to be. I don't want any dots. I don't want any stickers. So he said to Lucia, Lucia, how do you do that? How come they don't stick to you? And she says this, every single day, it's easy. I just go visit Eli, the woodcarver. Why? He says, go see for yourself. Will you even want to see me? So timidly, he goes to the woodcarver's shop. He opens the door and walks in, and everything is so large. It scares him. Everything's so big. It's, he's scared, and he's, he's ready to walk away. And then he hears his name. Eli says to him, Punchinello, how good it is to see you here. You know my name? Of course I do. I made you. It looks like you've been given some pretty bad marks. Punchinello started to get defensive, and he says, I didn't mean to. I tried really, really hard. And Eli says, Punchinello, you don't have to make excuses to me. You don't need to defend yourself to me. I don't care what the other Wemmicks think of you. You don't? No, and you shouldn't either. Who are they to give you stars and dots? They're Wemmicks, just like you. What they think doesn't matter, Punchinello. All that matters is what I think, and I think you are pretty special. Punchinello laughs to himself and says, pretty special? That can't be me. I can't walk fast. I can't jump. My paint is peeling. Why would I matter to you? Because you're mine, says Punchinello. Says Eli, you're mine. That's why you matter to me. No one had ever looked at Punchinello that way. He didn't know what to say. He said, every day I had been hoping you'd come to see me, Punchinello. I came because of Lucia. She had no stickers on her. I know she's the one who told me about you. Why don't stickers stay on her? Because she has decided that what I think is more important than what they think. The more you trust me and my love, the less you care about those stickers. Stickers only stick if you let them stick. They only stick if you think those stickers matter. I'm not sure I understand, said Punchinello. You will. But it'll take a little bit of, while, a little bit of time because you've got an awful lot of gray knots. But for now, just come and see me every day. And let me remind you how much I care, how much I love you. As Punchinello leaves, he hears these words from Eli. 
Remember, Punchinella, you are special because I made you, and I don't make mistakes. Punchinello didn't stop, but he said in his heart, I think he really means it. And when he did, a gray dot fell off. Now, it's only a children's story, but it's such a powerful children's story. Are we walking around putting stickers on people, at least in our mind? Are we labeling something, that there's something because of what they look like, what they can do? And if they can't, they get a great dot in our mind. We need a lesson to be learned here that those words spoken to us only have power if we let them. They only have power if they matter to you. The more we love and trust our creator, our God, the one who redeemed us, saved us, the more we believe his truth, the less and less those stickers matter to us the less and less it matters what people say to us and try to call us and try to identify us as. Those words don't matter when I remember the truth. I am a child of God and I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. And I have a power and authority over any of those thoughts or any of those words that are spoken. They have no power and authority unless I let them. I can be free of all those stickers, all those labels. What do we do? Meet with the Lord every day. Look in the word and let it be and be reminded of who you are in Christ, how much he cares for you, how much he loves you. Look in the word and discover the authority and the power that we have in Christ, in Jesus name. Be reminded we need to feed that. Let the word of God encourage us. Those truths will create a reality that's a reality. It'll be real instead of one based on lies and deceptions. Spending time with the Lord. It's a little childlike statement, but you're special because he made you. God says you're special because he created us and he doesn't make mistakes. He loves us. And that's one of the reasons we need to be very careful about the words we speak and the things we say to people. Starting in our home with our kids, our children, but also everywhere we go, out in the public, in the community, in our workplace, in the church. We need to be encouragers, building up, edifying, and strengthening. Being a generous church, one that is known as a church that will build up people, that welcomes people. We don't see yellow star stickers. We don't see gray dots. We see God's people, those he created in his image. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit will give each of us on an everyday basis an opportunity to see people the way you see them. To not be quick to be critical or to judge. Let us be those who would come with grace and demonstrate mercy. Let that gift of your Holy Spirit to, to be an encourager rise up in each one of us. That we would be able to build up, strengthen, cause people to grow, that they may become all that you intend them to be. Forgive us when we're one of those that sticks gray dots on people. We're quick to judge, slow to show grace and mercy. Help us by your Holy Spirit to become more like you, that we would be a generous people, 
part of a generous church. And Lord, this morning I pray for those that might be here that really can't hardly relate to knowing the kind of love that I'm talking about. Those here that may have never accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. May they know, may they hear the words that you do not judge them. You came to save them like you saved us. You rescued us. Doesn't matter who we are or what we've done, what our past looks like. God, you want to put in us a new heart that we might be born again by your spirit. By accepting Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Repenting of our sins and surrendering ourselves to you. Lord, I pray that anybody today that hears that will make this the day that they get that new heart. Acknowledge the need for Jesus. Someone to die in their place. And Lord, I pray that all of us would truly resemble Christ more and more each day. That we would be vessels, conduits of your love and your grace and mercy. Father, I ask this, that your name would be glorified, that Jesus' name would be lifted up. And in his name we pray these things. Amen.